All right. Well, good morning, Academy Christian Church here in the room. Glad that you're here with us. Well, as those that are joining us online, thank you for being with us today, as well as our West Side campus. And man, as we get started today, I I really just have a confession that I, I, I need to make. And my confession would be this. When I get behind the wheel of a car, the level of my self-centeredness goes up significantly because my goal is to get where I'm going as quickly and as easily and as efficiently as possible. And so about the only thing that I, I really appreciated about the pandemic shutdown was the lack of traffic on the roads because everybody was stuck at home. You could drive anywhere just about any time. And that's because my, my challenge while driving is that there are all kinds of obstacles that block my goals of quickly and easily and efficiently. I mean, for example, one of those would be uh, improperly programmed traffic lights. Could I get an amen? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, or it could be unexpected road conditions that includes, you know, both weather as well as construction. But also there are those very inconsistent and what I might define personally as defective drivers that I'm sharing the road with. And so my plan oftentimes is to try to get ahead of anyone who might impede my progress. And so honestly, I, I got to believe that it was God's providence that he provided me a home to live where the only exit from my neighborhood is directly past a charter school. <laughs> Those of you who are aware of charter schools will recognize, I'm guessing at least 95% of the kids who attend there are brought to school by their parents in their own personal vehicles uh, which twice a day produces very heavy traffic flow problems in and out of our neighborhood. And what makes it even worse, I don't live very far from the church, what makes it even worse for my very long three-minute commute to work is that those crazy drivers at, at this uh, school will actually stop in the middle of the road to allow someone to pull out of the parking lot in front of them while I'm patiently or impatiently waiting behind them. Now, as I've been processing my frustration because of how it slows my progress, I'd have to admit that as I look at it more closely, if this was the way the world functioned more often, it'd probably be a much more pleasant place to live. Which, honestly, is why we've enrolled in a semester of study called Practical Faith, University, And we're taking a look at just one chapter, Romans chapter 12, which really, it's a textbook on how faith is designed to be lived out on a very, very practical level. And so obviously, the, the messages we've been talking about are directed towards those who are already believers or followers of Christ. And I recognize that there might be some here today who are just here to check out church or what faith in Christ is all about. And if that's you, I really am glad that you're here today. Because if you've ever honestly wondered what the Christian life, what it was supposed to look like, how it was supposed to be lived out on an everyday basis, that, that's exactly why we're working our way through this application-packed chapter. Because most of us here really are uh, kind of a work in progress. 
And so before we jump in today, let's just do a review of some practical faith lessons that we've been looking at over these last few weeks. And what we've learned so far is that every, every believer is called, first of all, to live a life that is fully surrendered to Christ. And that's that whole idea of being a living sacrifice for him. Secondly, we learned that we've got to align our thinking with God's truth rather than what we would believe would be right or correct. And so we've got to make sure that that's happening. And then the third thing we learned is that we need to allow grace to keep us humble in our relationships with other people. Because other people are not our competition. We don't have to compete with them. And grace, the God, love of God keeps us humble. And then last week... Uh, we learned how uh, we need to follow Jesus synergistically, I would say, because it's amazing what happens when we come together in a community in a manner that functions much like a human body, which is the church. Now, since we just learned that we're supposed to be interconnected with each other in a community that functions kind of like a body with many different parts, I I really believe that's why Paul, uh, really, what it led to his very next instruction in practical faith living. Because once we start to bump into other people, we're going to need to take this into consideration. So let's go ahead and jump in to, to practical faith lesson number five. And it's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. You can follow along on the screen, on your outline, or on your device if you would like. Short, sweet, loaded with a lot of truth. Here's what it says. Love must be, must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Wow. God must really believe in us to give us that many commands so rapidly. You know, as much as I had confidence in in my own children, I would have never told them in in the same breath to to clean their rooms and brush their teeth and wax the kitchen floor. Uh, Because I would have expected that they would have waxed their teeth, brushed their rooms, and cleaned the kitchen floor with their toothpaste. So, yes, God created us, and so he must know our our capabilities and our limitations. And apparently, he believes in us more than we do, and he expects us to carry out what I would call four rapid-fire instructions, one right after the other, the first of which is that love must be sincere. Now, when we hear that, I think we would all agree that it really isn't love unless it is totally Sincere. I mean, inauthentic love is really kind of fake. Now, when we read that word sincere, you need to know sincere is from the Latin, which is composed of two words, sine, without, and cara, which is wax. And so what it literally means is without wax. That's what it means to be sincere. And that that word actually comes from an ancient practice where unethical craftsmen would hide cracks in defective pottery, filling them with wax and then painting over them uh, in order to make this defective pottery look more like quality. And so the genuine quality stuff, the pottery, was often stamped with that word sine cara to show that it was authentic. And it would be similar to what we, we would put on products today that would say all natural or 100% pure. And Paul is trying to tell us here that our love needs to be pure and it needs to be genuine, just from our words, sincere. But if you go back to the Greek, anupokritos is the Greek word 
that is translated for sincere. And the prefix means without, and upokritos actually means hypocrite, and so it means without hypocrisy. And we know today from uh, classical Greek that the word hypocrite meant someone who wore a mask in a play because they were playing a part. And once again, we have this picture that says our love needs to be real. It can't be pretend. And so why, why does Paul state it that way? Well, because all too often uh, we're, we're much better at claiming to love someone than we are at actually loving them. Because we all in some way have kind of learned the fine act of uh, our art of acting early on. And so, for example, we'll tell someone, hey, I'll pray for you. Well, we may not actually ever do it. Or we might smile at someone while they're talking, but we're really not even listening to them. Or we tell a person, hey, call me anytime, but when we see their number on the caller ID, we actually don't pick up. Or we tell someone that we forgot to do something they ask us to do, but in truth, we, we really just didn't want to do it. Or, or we say we'll keep in touch with someone, even though we likely won't. Or we'll say something positive about a person when we're in their presence, but away from them, we might speak a little bit more critically. So what can we do to make sure our love really is sincere? Well, what I hope you know today is that you can't give away what you don't have. And so for love to be sincere, there there needs to be a sincerity in your love. And that's when experiencing the true love of God kind of changes all of that. And so I think it's no wonder that probably the most well-known verse in all of the Bible just happens to be John 3.16, which says, For God so loved genuinely the world that he gave his one and only Son. He bankrupt heaven and gave his very best in sincerity of his love for us. And so God's love for us is authentic, it's real, it's not based on how we measure up. And as believers, we desperately need to wholly receive that full message of the gospel. That God actually loves us sincerely in spite of who we are or what we've become. He loves us enough to forgive us through the work of Christ on our behalf. And only when we've truly received his love for us Are we going to be able to offer sincerely that love to other people? In fact, that's what the Apostle John actually wrote in one of his letters in 1 John 4. Here's what he said. He said, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. That's where our love is supposed to come from. And so we got to recognize, it's not going to work if we get the cart before the horse. I mean, loving someone sincerely requires us experiencing the sincere love of God. And so I just want to say, if, if you're kind of struggling with loving other people, maybe you should start by examining yourself to see if you've really allowed God to to love you and to, to be loved by God. Because attempting to generate that kind of love that's required of Christ's followers on our own is almost going to be impossible. It's going to be too hard. But loving the way you've first been loved, actually, that's pretty doable. And so good news again today, you don't have to produce love on your own. And if you've been trying and getting worn out, good news again for starters, God actually promises when you surrender your life to him, he'll do a renovation of your heart. He says that in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises and says, hey, if you'll follow me, I'll give you a new heart, and I'll also put a new spirit in inside of you. 
And then we learn after the renovation, God actually steps in providing all the love that we need to be able to give to others through his Holy Spirit that lives in us. And we see that back in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, God's love has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. And so the question would be for us today, are are you relying on God or on yourself to fill up your love tank? And and you're probably not filling it up really well as well God could fill it up very well. Well, well, then you'll notice Paul suddenly transitions to a very different emotion from love as the second instruction actually includes, did you notice the word hate? Which may not seem very appropriate for a Christ follower, but he's clear about where that emotion needs to be directed, clarifying that, folks, evil is the enemy and the enemy is evil. Paul makes a very extreme declaration. He says, hate what is evil. And I think he makes it for at least two very good reasons. The first reason is because evil requires apathy to survive. And so if we don't hate it, if we don't have enough emotion, there's a lot of times we'll do nothing. You've probably heard the statement before, the great quote, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to simply do what? Nothing. There's that apathy showing up. But secondly, I think he's saying, because any hatred needs to be laser focused at the source of evil, which folks is not in the physical realm. It's actually in the spiritual realm. And we know that because in Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, Paul writes and says, hey, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not an earthly battle but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Evil is our enemy, and we got to recognize, man, our enemy is evil. In fact, Jesus actually titles him as such when, when he talks about in his model prayer how we should be asking God to deliver us from the evil one. And you know the reason we need to be delivered from him is because our enemy is not at all passive. As you are likely well aware, uh, evil pursues us. And I think it's it's worse than it's ever been. It used to be that you, you actually might have to go looking for evil or find yourself in circumstances unfortunate to be in a place where evil might be. But I'll tell you what, with the arrival of modern technology, evil actually can come looking for us. Because I look on my devices and sometimes it says, all I have to do is click like if I want to go down, pursue that more. And the problem is after a while, we can just kind of get numb to all of that. And anytime we become numb to evil and stop being shocked by it, we're in trouble. Think about it in your lifetime. Because of television and media, how many murders, how much adultery, how much lying, how much stealing have we seen so that almost to the point that we're no longer even alarmed. And therein lies the real danger when we don't approve of evil deeds, but now we also don't really hate them either. See, Paul says we need to recognize evil as the enemy and and literally hate it. And the Greek word here means to shudder with horror. I mean, one commentator describes it as an intense inward rejection. 
And so the appropriate Christian attitude toward evil behavior is really kind of a vehement opposition to the point of being horrified about it and even feeling hatred towards it. Now that may seem awkward until we realize where the hate is directed. See, we hate evil because of evil things, how it hurts people in relationships. That's why we hate evil. We hate evil and sin because they destroy people and push them away from God who's the source of life. And if we sincerely love God and sincerely love people, we'll hate what is evil. Now, Paul probably didn't come up with that on his own. In fact, when he was young, he studied the Old Testament a lot. And he probably heard at one time or another Psalm 97, verse 10, where it says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Or then Solomon in the book of Proverbs chapter 8, where he says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And the challenge that we really have with that today is we're we're living in an age where people have kind of rejected the idea of absolute truth. You you know that the biblical worldview is that there is truth and there is error. There's right and there is wrong. There is good and there is evil. And what we just have to be careful of is that we make sure we're not swept into the whirlpool of moral relativism in our culture today because it's everywhere in our culture. And we see it in so many different ways. One one of the things, growing up as a kid, there was a movie, it had a soundtrack that was a part of it. And I'll never forget the words of one of the songs. It was a hit song and the words went like this. How can it be so wrong when it feels so right? And we've gotten into that today. It's something that the prophet Isaiah kind of warned against in Isaiah chapter 5, where he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, i got to warn you, I'm going to quit preaching and go to meddling here uh, for just a little bit, because we, we see this in our society. There are some students today in classes who don't cheat at school, not because they value truth and want to do their own work. It's because they're afraid they might get caught and then fail. And and there might be some, there's not a lot, but there might be some who drive the speed limit, not because they're concerned with respecting authority, but because they don't want to pay the fine or the ticket if they get caught. And we might be reporting our income accurately, but not because it's the right thing to do, but because we're afraid of a big fine if we happen to get audited. In other words, our true motivation is often not a love for what is good as much as it is a feeling that we, we really can't get away with what we'd, what we'd like to do. Which is why the third instruction is so important, which is, folks, to hang on for dear life to what is good. Hang on for dear life to what is good. Paul actually uses the word kaleo, which is the Greek word for cling, and it means to stick like glue or cement. Well, Henry Dempsey was a pilot on a commuter flight from Portland, Maine to Boston one day. He heard an unusual noise coming from the rear of the aircraft, and so he turned the controls over to his co-pilot, and he went back to check out what was going on. Well, when he reached the tail section of the plane, the plane hit an air pocket, and Dempsey was tossed against the rear door that he quickly discovered was the source of mysterious noise because the rear door had not been properly latched prior to takeoff, and it flew open, uh, immediately sucking him out of the airplane. 
Well, the co-pilot, seeing the red fly light flashing on the dash that indicated an open door, radioed the nearest airport, got permission for an emergency landing, uh, said that the pilot had uh, really fallen out of the plane and that they needed to send a helicopter to search the ocean for him. Well, amazingly, when the plane landed, they actually found Henry Dempsey clinging to the outdoor ladder of the aircraft. And somehow he'd grabbed hold of the ladder and held on to it for 10 minutes as the plane flew at 200 miles an hour at 4,000 feet altitude. Uh, Not to mention that when they, they landed, he had to keep his head from hitting the runway, which is about 12 inches away. But what was interesting was, apparently, apparently, it, it took several minutes for the rescue personnel to pry Dempsey's finger from the ladder. You know why? Because he was holding on for dear life. And I think that's what it means when Paul says, cling to that which is good. And Paul actually even mentions our perspective, how it should be in Romans chapter 16, verse 19, where he says, but I want you to be wise about what's good. And you seem to really be innocent about what is evil. Now, what is it that makes good, good? And what is it that makes evil, evil? In other words, how can there be such a thing as objective good or evil? And you know the reason behind it. There is such a thing as objective good outside of ourselves because there's a God that is outside of ourselves. You know, if there was no God and there were no Christ, then good really would be subjective and not objective. And so good would literally be in the eye of the beholder, especially the strongest beholder. And so it would be might that makes right, except that God exists. And therefore, might does not make right. The good and true and right and beautiful have an objective foundation in God because he's the one that declares us. And so because God created us with intention and design, then what God calls evil, he does so because it's bad for people. And what he calls good, he calls good because it's healthy for people. And I think all too often, what God says is evil, we sometimes kind of have a difficulty believing because evil often feels good in the moment. But you know what feels good in the moment can be destructive in the long haul. While what is good in the long term can actually be a little bit uncomfortable in the moment. So how do we make sure we identify the good? Well, God's given us his word, and so we regularly and attentively study and read the word of God and his instructions for our lives. Now, speaking of instruction, there, there was one more of those instructions in rapid-fire succession that, interestingly, kind of, I think, caters to the competitive gene that we apparently possess in all of us. And so this fourth instruction was to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, you know, we love to compete against one another in various ways. We love the thrill of competition. Of course, we like to win. So what, what is this Christian sport that we're called to outdo each other in? It's the sport of honoring one another above ourselves. And, and outdoing one another in love and in showing honor is literally how several translations state this instruction to honor one another above yourselves. And you know what to honor is? To honor is just to simply attach high value. When you honor someone, you're attaching high value to them. 
And I think Paul kind of mentions that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, pretty simple, but not easy. You know why? Because our challenge is we're all recovering narcissists. <laughs> Let's admit it. And we got to start early on in life, about the time we're born, we come into the world and we kind of say, it's all about me. When I want to be fed, you better feed me. When I want to be changed, you better change me. And we have a hard time growing out of that. In fact, for a lot of people, still their favorite radio station is WIIFM. What's in it for me? That's the station we like to listen to. And so here's the secret to that of honoring one another. One another. When you're secure in the value of God's love actually provides for you, because you know, hey, God loves me, I'm valuable. That's when you're able to value others above yourself, because you know it's not going to diminish your value at all. Now, maybe you're here today, and, and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you've been having some doubts about God. And I'm glad you're here, uh, because... What you need to hear and what all of us need to remember is that God is a good God and he he never leaves us hanging. He doesn't ask from us what we cannot do with his help. And so in Christ, we're forgiven of our sins and now we can actually tap into God's power. And it's his spirit that enables us to love sincerely and to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good and to honor one another above ourselves. So I wanted to leave you just with some some practical applications. You can pick one, you can pick all three, but I'd encourage you at least to do something. And so the the first option might be this. Every morning, ask the Lord to refill your heart so that it overflows with his love. You know why it needs to be refilled? Because we all leak. And we might have a little love sometimes, but it's leaking out. And so we need to be filled with this love. That's one of the things I'm going to start adding to my prayer list every day. God, I need a, I need a refilling of your love because that's what he promises to do. Pour out his love into our hearts. Second suggestion would be just to be aware and beware of evil. It's all around us and we may, we may just have been missing it or not really seeing it. And, and then pursue what is good. Make sure we're following that path hard. And the last one I had to put in there because of those crazy drivers at the charter school. But I think it could help intentionally. It doesn't have to be at the school. It could be at the store. It could be anywhere. Let one person go ahead of you. Say, you know what? I'm going to honor you above myself and put you first. And man, I, I think the world, if we could live like that, would start to be a better place. Let's pray. Father, wow, these things that we've looked at today, not easy at all. We really need to be authentic in our love, but before we're going to get there, we've got to be loved by you, so help us today. I pray that every person in this room would be able to understand how much you love and care for them. Father, there's a lot of evil in this world that is tearing it apart, breaking it up, and we need to hate that evil. Not people, but the evil in the world. God, I pray, especially as we live in these times, that we would, we would cling to what is good and hold on to it with all of our strength. And then in the security of, our, of your love, that we would be able to honor other people above ourselves. Use us to live that way so we can maybe not change the world. Maybe today we could, we could 
change our home or our neighborhood or our city. And that'd be a great place for us to start, Father. So help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.